following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, so, still in Hebrews. Still have a month to go. We're in part two because we couldn't finish last week, which is one reason this is taking nine months for us to get through one book of the Bible. So just a quick recap. I don't want to preach last Sunday's sermon, but I think we need to remind ourselves of where we were just so we understand fully where we're going this morning. So Hebrews 1 through 12 is this really deep and really rich discussion of who Jesus is. The whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than all these other things that, in this case, a Jewish audience had really revered. Better than Abraham, who's the patriarch. Better than Moses, from whom you got the law. Better than David. Better than these high priests that you really revere. And all these things, those were good people who brought you good things, but they're nothing compared to who Jesus is. So Hebrews 1 through 12 is clarifying, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is your ultimate high priest, the one who gave his life for you. And now, through Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Salvation is offered. The glory of God is fully seen in this expression of Jesus. And then the last chapter of Hebrews, the author is kind of bringing it home. Okay, what does it look like now? If this is who Jesus is, and this is what it means that you're the people of Jesus, how does this change how we live our lives? And I phrased it a couple different ways last week, but the author says, let brotherly love continue. And the reason I think is this, that people will know who or what we love when they see who and how we love. So we talked about this idea then of what it looks like to open the door to people and the sense of being generous. That as people are coming into the church or simply people that we see around us, what does it look like for the people of God to whom God has been generous in the giving of his son to pass on that generosity in a practical way? And passing on practical generosity doesn't save people, right? But it's in opening the door and letting other people into our lives that we have now this access where the love of God that we showed by opening the door we now talk about the love of God that was given to us that even makes it possible for us to genuinely care and love and sacrifice for others. And I noted this involves at, at least some of the time to somebody. We need to be generous. It probably means we have to be willing at all times to show hospitality and concern to someone in some way. And then in addition, recognizing that this is the kind of thing that will cost us something. So, not everybody has to do this the same way. Some of you are extroverts. Some of you are introverts. Some of you have a lot of money. Some of you don't. Some of you have schedules that let you have a lot of free time to engage people. Others of you are just busy morning to night. So, it's not like we're creating a template of what it looks like for everybody to honor this command. But the writer of Hebrews says, love each other with this kind of brotherly love that's very close to agape love. Uh, it's, it's just generosity, it's giving, it's valuing others deeply and showing it by what we give to them in terms of time and resources. I thought of two ways I saw this happen very practically this last weekend. One was as the crossing was here from Jesus' people, the different people in the community who made it possible for them to have a good experience here. Uh, some of you who gave 
a very generous amount of money to help underwrite the cost of their being here, which not only covered the concert, it let us entertain them nicely in terms of food. Uh, it gave us extra money to give to Single Mom as part of the fundraiser. Uh, Laura and Sheila made a fantastic meal on Friday evening. People in the community housed them freely and generously. Just a very practical way that people here in Traverse City opened up their wallets and their lives to people who were visiting and in some ways ministering to us. I saw yesterday Carl posted something after the memorial service here for Freddie Johnson, just how um, his comment was how much church showed up for him and for their family, making food, um, just simply being present, lots of different ways. In fact, he tells a story, and I think I'm going to tell this later a little bit more in depth, of the ways in which Freddie opened the door to Carl at a time when Carl was not the kind of guy you'd be inclined to open your door to. And you can ask Carl about this. Uh, but there was something about that, I believe, God-inspired generosity and love that really left a mark on Carl's life. So we're to show this kind of love to people, and we noted last week this is hard to go back very briefly to what A.W. Pink said again. Brotherly love is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it's not watched and watered, it quickly wilts. It's not a native of the soil of fallen human nature. And if it is to thrive, it must be carefully protected and diligently cultivated. So God looked out for us and then was generous to us through the person of Christ and the grace and forgiveness he offers. We look out for others and look for ways to pass on this generosity. So last week, we talked about ways in which we can undermine this or lose this, specifically within the church, because this passage is mostly focused on what it looks like amongst Christians. Though the context of the Bible broadens it out to everybody, but this passage is, is pretty focused. So for one, if we have bad theology, we're going to be in trouble because as we get to know God, one of God's characteristics is that God is love. If we don't understand God, we won't understand God's love and we won't know what kind of love we are to pass on to others. We can undermine this generosity by separating on what we call secondary issues or open hand issues. They're things we as Christians agree upon. Jesus is God in the flesh. He rose physically. He is the only path to salvation. There's things like that we hold tightly as part of our faith, and those things unite us in spite of our differences. We can undermine brotherly love by dividing on secondary issues, things which ought not separate us. This last Wednesday night, about 10 of us were gathered around a fire, and there was a lot of laughter at the beginning and then it got into a more serious discussion, and one of the things that came up was, how do we as Christians navigate today's political scene? What does it look like to follow God's leading in our conscience as we enter a voting booth, as we simply try to live as citizens of the kingdom and an empire? And I'll be honest, it got a little tense. Not everybody, everybody around that fire pit agreed about what kind of approach we ought to take. But you know what? Politics is not what united us around that fire. Jesus united us around that fire. And so it was tense for a while, and then we laughed again, and we'll all go back. Because those things don't separate us. They can't, because we're followers of Jesus. And we unite around 
who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The third thing we noted was that unreflective or unsurrendered character can undermine this brotherly love. And the idea is simply this. We're all called to maturity in Christ. We won't all get there at the same speed. We don't all start at the same place. So once again, I'm not talking about a template where everyone has to look exactly the same. We're just talking about this ongoing process of followers of Christ. Am I committed to uh, surrendering myself to the accountability and feedback of others, to the mirror of the Bible, so that I see my life honestly and understand what areas of my life need to be surrendered more fully to Christ so that I grow up. I made the point last week, you need me to grow up, not just as a pastor, but as a friend in Christ. I need you to grow up. I feel like a really cool thing would be to turn to the person next to you and just say, grow up. But we're going to skip that part. That could be a little tense. But that's the idea. Right? We need each other. It's not just about our personal maturity. It's for the sake of the body. Another thing that can undermine things was looking for or needing a conflict. That is, if we have people within the church who are constantly trying to create some type of tension. They thrive best when they're arguing with somebody about something or they're just never going to give the benefit of the doubt because, once again, they, they thrive on having a problem to fix. They might even create problems when they're not there. That's going to undermine brotherly love. Um, desiring or envying power or influence in a church community is really a killer of fellowship. If you have gifts and talents, use them fully to the glory of God. But don't use them for your own glory or for your own influence. And if someone else is flourishing in ways that you wish you were, you got to let them flourish and applaud them for it. You don't have to be them. You just need to be who God made you to be. Uh, Self-centeredness will undermine it. Church isn't about us. It's for us. So listen to me carefully. Church isn't about you. I'm trying to look all of you in the eye, and you can look me in the eye. Church is about us. In the same way, the, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. Who's the Bible about? Yeah, it's about God. It's about Jesus. It's for us, but it's not about us. Salvation is for us. Salvation is not about us. It's about Jesus who gives us salvation. Church is for us. I'm going to talk about that more later today. The church isn't about us. The seventh thing was just unchecked sin. The idea that sin is of communal interest in the church because sin forms us. Doesn't mean everybody has to know your business. But the reality is, if I let sin grow and fester in my life, and I'm an imperfect person, we all are on this side of heaven, right? Talking about settling into and giving up into patterns of sin, it's going to have an influence on the entire community because sin is formative. So even if you hide it from others so they don't see it, it's doing something in your heart and mind and soul that's going to spill out and influence the people around you. And then finally, just a, a concern about what I call aloofness, and that is in the community of the church, the Bible does not call us to be aloof and standoffish. The Bible calls us to be engaged now, once again, that can look different for different people. We're not all of the same personality and same opportunity. It's just within the framework of what God has given you, 
Is it part of the pattern of your ongoing church life experience to find others to reach out to? And we're going to talk a bit more about what that looks like today also. So those were all ways we could lose brotherly love. So we're going to talk today, though, primarily about how to keep brotherly love. So number one, a key way we do this is that we experience and pass on grace. By experience, I mean it in two ways. First of all, experiencing the grace of God to us through salvation. If you're wondering what it means that God loves you and that God extends grace to you, you won't fully understand it until you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. So this is the call for salvation. And it's a prayer you pray. It's a lifestyle you lead. This surrendering ourselves to God is more than just magic words, though I think certainly words of surrender are important. But it's looking at Jesus and saying, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you are the only source of forgiveness of my sins and making me right with God. And so I give my life to you. I will now serve you. I will learn what it means to walk in your path. I will learn what it means to have my mind renewed and my loves and my desires renewed. And I'm dedicating my life to being transformed into your image. And while that's a Holy Spirit thing that works in us apart from our works, uh, as much power as God has given to me to be able to invest back into that, I'm dedicating my life to the things that God has called me to. All right? So... This is the experience of grace where God gives to you something you can't possibly earn and that there is in no way you deserve. It's just a gift. So we experience it first, but then we pass it on. And now we begin to extend this grace to others, things they don't deserve from us. A person who has terribly hurt you with their words, they might not deserve you extending them grace, But God gave you grace when you were a miserable sinner. And so we pass on this grace. And just as God's grace renews and restores and heals things in us and changes us, we have this opportunity to be conduits of God's grace. And while we can't do what the Holy Spirit does in other people's lives, we can very practically show people what it looks like to experience God's grace. Sometimes I think grace can be this kind of mystical thing, like I don't know what it means to really feel it. I wonder if that's the purpose of the church, God's body on earth, so that if I'm having a hard time grasping what does it mean that God shows me grace, I know what it means when my wife shows me grace. And I know God is working in the heart and mind of my wife to enable her to show me grace And so now I get an idea of what God's grace feels like as it comes to me through God's people. Does that make sense? We we really practically experience it through others. A lot of you in this church have extended me grace. I'm a flawed person. If you haven't experienced that personally in a way that can hurt or be really discouraging, give it time. (laughs) It's my one promise to you. Give it time. I'll step up. But then when you give grace to me, I know that it's God working through you, that what you have been given, you have passed on to me. And now if I wonder, what is it like to experience God's grace? I often most practically feel it through the grace of God's people. 
So we experience and we pass on grace. So this is my story that Carl told yesterday about his father-in-law, Freddie. Freddie was not his father-in-law at the time. But on the day Freddie's wife died, Carl was standing in the driveway of the house because he was friends with the family, having an argument with someone. And Freddie invites him in for supper on the day that his wife died. And Carl goes in for supper. And after the funeral, Freddie invites Carl back to his house. And is just a friend. And Carl was not a Christian at the time, but he experienced something about love and generosity and grace on maybe the worst day, this is Carl's words, maybe the worst day of his life, he showed this kind of thoughtfulness and generosity and friendship to someone else. And as I listened to Carl share that story yesterday, I'm not sure how many years ago that was, but that has left a profound mark on Carl's life. And I suspect was a key thing in God working through others to draw Carl closer to him. So I'm thinking of it in this way. It's not just grace, but also as God's love is given to us, we pass on love to others. As God's blessing is given to us, whether that is financial blessing or emotional blessing, you name whatever ways God is gifting you with good things, that's never meant to stop with us. It's always meant to go through us to someone else. So what has been given, we pass on. And in that sense, brotherly love flourishes in a community where we're constantly looking of ways to pass on to others what God has given to us. The second thing is knowing our duty within our family. So Braden got home from college this year, and one of our first conversations with him was like, okay, dude, now that you're home and you're in this house, guess what? You get to mow the lawn. That made me really happy to say. Um, Braden, that's just a reminder. It needs to happen this week. Um, so you now have responsibilities. You're sharing this house with us, your family. So you got to step up and do family things. Vince says stuff he does around the house during the week. He's family. you got to do family things. We all pitch in. So within the church, we're, we're family, body of Jesus, right? We're all children, so to speak. We're in it together. So it, just like you have duties in your family, you have duties in this family, and I have duties in this family. So here's one of them from Hebrews. Let brotherly love continue. So that church apparently had brotherly love, the author wasn't like, you need to start brotherly love. It's like, don't forget, what you're doing needs to continue. This is an important thing. So let brotherly love continue. We get blessings that God gives us, just spiritual riches that are profound. All right. What is our duty within family? Our duty within family is to share those and pass those on to our brothers and sisters. And like I said, once again, that can be in a lot of ways. It, it can be money, it can be time, it can be friendship. There's many ways that this manifests itself, but with great blessing comes great responsibility. And, and so as you're looking around the room or you're thinking about the rhythm of your life at church community, one way that happens is helping out with church stuff. But the other way is just practically speaking, looking around the room, identifying people in the room where you have blessings that you can pass on to them, whatever that might look like. Once again, not the same template for everybody, but within the context of what God has gifted you with. 
gifted us with, what are we doing to pass those things on to those around us? And in that way, we build brotherly love. Third thing is pursuing and embracing sanctification or the process of growth and maturity. So if one thing that undermines community is a lack of maturity, maturity builds it up. Bible says that he who has begun a good work in you, that's God, will continue it. So when you surrender your life to Christ, God begins this work inside of you through his word, through his Holy Spirit, through his people. He's going to take children. He's going to grow us up. And we're going to continue to grow until we die. We'll never reach it, right, on this side of heaven. But there's going to be this ongoing process of maturity. And, and I have four key ways I think this happened. I put them on the, on the screen, and they're in your notes. I'm just going to touch on them because I really need to finish this sermon this Sunday. But one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about this is recently, Sheila and I have been revisiting some dynamics in our marriage and realizing both of us have growing up to do. I mean, that was always clear. You can ask Sheila for more information about that. But there was a couple particular ways in the last few months that we realized, oh man, we, we both had some real blind spots about things in our marriage where we just weren't mature. And it was showing itself in petty little arguments and disagreements, these emotional flare-ups, and both of us were going, what is going on? Like, this is a silly thing to argue about, but here we are again arguing about this thing. So without going into all the details, two things were happening. One is, Sheila wasn't being honest with me about some things. And I, I knew it, but I didn't have words for it, but she just wasn't being honest with me. But you know why she wasn't being honest with me? Because she didn't think I would honor her opinion. I wasn't honoring her. We both had some growing up to do. I, okay. And you know what the funny thing is? Since we identified that, it's totally changed that dynamic. Who knew that fixing those rough spots would make life smoother? Right? So, I mean, it's never fun. Don't get me wrong. We, we had some, I don't like the conversations that go into becoming more mature. But I love what's on the other side of those conversations. Now, why do my wife and I do that? Because we're committed to each other. Because we're going to do life together. And we're either going to like it or not. Rather like it. Okay, we're, so in, in marriage, my wife and I are in biblical language, we're in a covenant. When you give your life to Jesus, you're in a covenant with Jesus. But now you're also in this family, and now you're doing life together, and we're either going to like it or we're not. If we want to like it, we got to step into this path of maturity. We have to, and here's my four things now. I'm just now getting to them, 1042. First of all, knowing your Bible to learn who God is. And when we read in the Old Testament, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God? What does that look like? The Bible tells you. This is the path of life laid out for us. What does maturity look like? It looks like this, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control, gentleness. You can go through all kinds of places in the Bible. It'll tell you where we're going as children of God. And then, and we've said this before, when God calls us to something, he equips us to get there. Okay, God is calling us, his children, to maturity. He will equip us to get there. One way through the Bible. The second way through the Holy Spirit. 
God does a supernatural work in his children. It's not something we will do on our own effort. It's not something we can earn. It is a gift to us. Once again, the grace that in a supernatural sense, God's spirit is at work in us, refining us, leading us, guiding us, challenging us. Um, You can just look up verses on the Holy Spirit in the Bible to know what God is supernaturally doing within us. Third thing is, and this is where we put sweat equity into this, we got to be honest with each other, and we got to put ourselves into accountability for maturity. Uh, The longer I live, the more I firmly believe this, that we don't reach maturity just on our own. Maturity happens when iron sharpens iron, when we not only rub shoulders with people, but bang elbows with people. In this community, I mean, you've seen it, right? Just within friendships or within family in your life. That it's often on the other side of conflict that the new you that emerges is a better person. Now, that's not a promise. We can do conflict badly or there can be dynamics that other people bring that... We, okay, we could talk about that in Message Plus. But ideally... What conflict does is bring out of us a new place, a new maturity, something in us as we navigate those difficulties. And often that conflict that brings the most maturity is the one where we recognize something in ourselves. We're honest and we say, I am not the person I should be. If we can't do that, we're never going to grow up. I mean, if you're looking at your life right now thinking, I don't know if I have work to do, you're wrong. I know you. Listen, do I have work to do in my life? Thank you. You need to shout that loud. Uh, Yes, I do. I, I don't mean that as a trick question. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Until you get to heaven, there is work to be done in all of us as we're transformed into the image of Christ. And and God works in us. But we can make choices about how we want to respond to that. Do we submit ourselves in accountability to others? Are we honest to others? And are we, number one, doing it about ourselves? Brother, sister, husband, wife, parent, child, friend, how do you experience me? Give me feedback on my life. Hard conversations. But if we love each other, we'll ask that question because we love others. And then those who respond to us will respond with truth and grace and gentleness because they love us. And then as a group, we walk into maturity. And that's a beautiful thing. I'd like to be in a room full of more mature people. Come on, you do too. Right? You with me? It's part of the beautiful vision the Bible gives of what life in Christ can look like. Because once again, if God calls us to maturity, he'll equip us. He'll give us what we need. We've got the Bible. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got a group of people who are invested in the kingdom of God, and that includes us. Okay, we've got to move on. More I could say about that. The fourth thing that builds brotherly love and builds community is making peace. 
So this means entering into conflict. It doesn't mean avoiding conflict. That's not peace. That's avoidance. It means when there is conflict, when there is tension, we walk into it, but we walk into it in ways that are purposefully productive. So a couple things. Number one, we speak truth, but we're gracious. Having an offensive personality is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we give offense through the gracious presentation of the truth, then that's the foolishness of the cross revealing itself to the world. That's really biblical language. That makes it sound like the cross is foolish. That's the, the stumbling block of the truth of the gospel and our sinfulness, etc., that can create hurdles for people. So there are times we give offense, but an offensive personality is not a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's not a mark of maturity in Christ. So we enter into conflict, but we're gracious when we speak truth. Secondly, we give the benefit of the doubt to others. We're in a conversation with someone face-to-face or online. It's usually worse online because online you just can't get the nuance of someone's face in front of you where you can see expressions and get a vibe for what's going on. I I see it happen time and again, and I'm certainly guilty of it too. Somebody says something, and I reach a snap judgment about what I think they mean that goes beyond the words they said. Or they might have phrased something a little funny, And rather than me going, did you mean to say this? I just kind of assume that I can figure out what they meant to say. And more often than not, I'm wrong. So part of this peacemaking is clarification. Do we clarify before we reach conclusions? Did you you mean to make that point? Um, Or maybe online you're having a, a discussion with someone and it feels like it's getting tense and Maybe you send them a private message and you say, all right, I just want to be clear. Are we arguing here? uh, Are you angry? It's hard for me to pick up on what's happening here. Or are we just talking? So we try to figure it out instead of just make assumptions about what people are doing. And we try to give the benefit of the doubt until it's clear. I've had conversations, and because the closest person in my life is my wife, it's my easiest examples, Um, where we'll have a discussion and finally I'll stop and say, okay, I I need to know something. Are you mad at me right now? Because it it feels like it to me, but I don't know if that's my own clouded judgment putting something on you that's not there or if you actually are angry about this. And sometimes my wife goes, I'm not angry. Oh, okay, so that that was my filter. That's my bad. And sometimes my wife's like, yeah, you're picking up what I'm laying down. All right, it's a good clarification. <laughs> right? So giving the benefit of the doubt and clarifying. Um, do we genuinely listen before we respond? You ever been in a conversation with someone where you can tell they're just waiting to get their two cents and, and nothing you're saying is sinking in at all? It's so frustrating, right? Because you're like, I want to be heard. I, Just listen and understand and then say what you have to say and I'll do you the favor of listening and understanding. So let's both do this. Let's let's take the time to know before we ask to be known. And then finally, when we have conflict with people, whether it's something we're thrown into or that we walk into, is it clear to the person that we're in conflict with that we genuinely love them and care about them and are are serious about them. Because love covers a multitude of sins. 
Right, so if I'm in a tense conversation, I'm going to go back to my fire pit example last Wednesday night. Whatever tension was there, it wasn't terrible, it was just there. You know what I knew about everybody in that circle was that we loved each other. We cared about each other. We were invested in getting to know each other and understand each other and figure out how to do life together. Let me tell you what. You can make a mistake in how you say something. You can be a jerk for an evening. You, you name it. We're doing life together. It's just the reality of it. Uh, and so even when there's conflict, we know that we care about each other. We're, we're committed. We're in it. Well, we have to figure it out because we're either going to like our friendship or not like it. I prefer liking friendships. It's going to require making peace in a way that is purposeful and proactive and careful. It never compromises truth, but it always makes truth beautiful. Okay, fifth thing is boundaries, which might seem like an odd thing, but last Sunday in Message Plus, Jackie Cashel brought this up. We were talking about what it means to be generous, and Jackie said she defines generosity as giving to others what they need, which I thought was a great definition. That's different from giving to others what they want, because often what we want is a terrible thing indeed. And so generosity is looking at people around us and saying, what do you need that I have that I can give to you? Okay, I will give to you what I need. So sometimes, and we've talked about this a lot, sometimes that can be money, time, friendship, lodging, all kinds of ways. But sometimes the best thing I can give someone is boundaries. Sometimes the most generous thing I can do is say no. I was thinking of a couple of examples. If fish could talk, and I'm glad they can't, but if they could, and be like, listen, I just want to get out of this pond and explore the world. Yeah, no. The most generous thing I can do for you is not take you out of the pond and put you into the air. Right? It might be what you want. It's not what you need. If a train says, these tracks are too limiting, I just want to use the road. No. The most generous thing I can do for you, this was the little engine that couldn't, is say, you're stuck with tracks. I, I might help you lay more track there for you to explore, but I'm not taking you off the track. I'm not going to help you get off the track. I'm not going to enable you jumping the rails. Right? That too is generous, and that too comes at a cost, because often the cost is anger or frustration from others, like, why don't you care about me? So the cost you pay is that tension, but then going, no, I'm sorry. It is because I love you. The most generous thing I can do for you is to say no or stop or not in my house or come back when you're ready to deal with this seriously. My, one of my sisters years ago um, needed to go into rehab, and I went to my mom's house where my sister was at the time, and we had a fairly difficult conversation where I said, I'm, I'm sorry, you are going to Texas into a rehab facility. And her response to me was, why do you, and it was more forceful than I'm going to demonstrate this morning, but the question was, why don't you love me? I said, no, you don't understand. The best thing I can do for you is give you what you need, and what you need is help. And my mom is not in a position to give you the help that you need. And if you would ask my sister today if that was the right call, absolutely that was the right call. Was it costly? Yes. Emotionally costly. Was it generous? Well, it was the best thing I could give to meet the needs of my sister.
Now, don't hear that as an excuse not to be generous in the other way. Because it's easy for us to come up with our own justifications and say no to people when we should be saying yes. This is where community comes in, that we go to other people and we say, I have this situation. I don't know what it looks like to be righteously generous to this person. What do I need to give them? Do I need to give them a yes and then give this from my storehouse? Or do I need to give them a no? I don't know. I'm confused. Okay, don't try to figure that out on your own. Find other people whose wisdom you trust and let them walk through that with you. Number six, other-centeredness. And this is my last point, uh, which is good. This is simply an outlook. The Bible talks about, as followers of Jesus, we should give more esteem to others than we give to ourselves. That's, that's different from saying ignore self-care, which I think is also a biblical principle. It's just saying we need to be other-centered. So two things happen in church. We are meant to be filled up, and we are meant to be spilled out. So here's how church is for you. One of the things that the body of Christ is meant to offer is to fill up all the ways in which we are drained and empty in our lives and to offer healing where there's brokenness. That happens through the Word of God, which richly nourishes us. It happens through the Holy Spirit. It also happens through the people of God. So church is for you in the sense that when you experience life in this community, I hope that what you experience is God's restoration, God's love, God's peace, God's healing, God's generosity, all those things through the people of God. So if you're coming to church on a Sunday morning and you are drained and you are empty and you are broken, man, I I hope church is a place where God meets your needs supernaturally and through his people. I mean, if we're failing to offer what God has given us to offer, that's, that's a huge failure on our part as a church community. In that way, church is for you. You meet God in very practical ways. But then we're also spilled out. So this is where church is not about you. The other part of life together is that ongoing patterns of coming to church and as we get to know people and we do life together throughout the week as well, we're looking to see who is the broken person next to me? Who is the empty person that I see? What has God given to me that I can offer to them to help fill them back up? I'm just passing on what God's given to me. So in the rhythm of church life, we experience both these things. Listen, some Sundays, maybe some months of Sundays, church is for you. You're at a season in your life where you are done. All right, come to church and let God and God's people fill you again. Now, you're going to have to be honest and let us know. We're not going to be able to guess it, right? Be honest with us. But if there's seasons of your life where church fills you, awesome. But then there's going to be seasons of your life where you're going to be the filled one. And now church is the place where you are spilled out for others. Does that make sense? It's, kind of, it's an ongoing rhythm. It, it might not be both every Sunday, though I suspect it is in ways we don't understand. It's, it's okay to have seasons in your life. But just recognize this, is, this Sunday I need to be filled. I, I just need to be refreshed. And now this Sunday, man... I'm filled up.
I wonder who I can look at this Sunday and really pass on the love of God to. So I, I would just say these things. Love those who are already in your circle. What I mean by that is when you come to church on a Sunday, there's a certain group of people that you know well, you gravitate toward them. They're the ones when you see them in the lobby, you're going to go say hi to them. You see them sitting down here, you're going to go sit next to them. Love them well. Think of how to be generous, how to be spilled out when you need to be spilled out for them, and also how to go to them and ask them to fill you up when you have those times in your life where you need that. But then... Be purposeful about expanding your circle. If every Sunday, all you do, and then every week, all you do is interact with that group of people, I, I think, frankly, if that's our pattern of church life, we are failing to fulfill this command. Now, once again, different personalities, different resources. There's not a template for this. I'm just asking you within the framework of who God made you, of who you are, what does it look like to expand that circle? You don't have to say hi to everybody on a Sunday morning. But what does it look like to make a pattern of ongoing, that person I don't know well, I'm sitting next to them this Sunday, or I'm seeking them out in the lobby, or we're having lunch afterwards, or something like that. And really, I'll summarize that as look for opportunities to invest in anyone. I originally, I said, look for opportunities to invest in everyone, but I don't know how possible that is. Um, if, if I would just say, I, Anthony, need to try to deeply invest in every single one of you, I just can't do it. I just, I don't, I'm not capable. But as a room, we're capable. Right? As a room, we're capable. There's no reason anyone in this room is overlooked or ignored. Because all of us are in this together. And if part of our pattern of church life together on Sundays, during the week, on social media, you name it, we have our circle that we already know, but we're in this pattern of looking to expand, looking to know, looking to, looking to blend our lives with others in some fashion. Not always at the same level. Right? You can't sustain. Yeah, okay, I've already said that. But just being purposeful. I really feel like part of what the church needs to feel like as God's representation on earth, it needs to feel like home. It needs to feel like ideal family. It needs to be that place where you know when you show up, you will be seen, you will be known, you will be heard, you will be valued is really the summary. But, but that's a group effort. That can't be 15 people in the church or just greeters on a Sunday morning. That's everybody before service, after service, during the week, committed to, listen, if you're part of our family, you're going to feel like family. And it's not my neighbor's responsibility. I mean, it is. But it's mine. It's my responsibility, too. So this, once again, I think is the vision the Bible offers of life together. That if that's what church likes, what is not compelling about that vision? If we're, these things I just mentioned, if we're all in it for these things, man, oh man. That, that's a taste of heaven, friends. That's a taste of heaven. I'm going to finish with a quote from David Brooks. I was reading a book of his called The Second Mountain. He said, when people make generosity part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are. The interesting thing about your personality, your essence, is that it is not more or less permanent like your leg bone. Your essence is changeable like your mind. 
Every action you take, every thought you have changes you, even if just a little, making you a little more elevated or a little more degraded. If you do a series of good deeds, the habit of other-centeredness becomes gradually engraved into your life. It becomes easier to do good deeds down the line. If you lie or behave callously or cruelly towards someone, your personality degrades and it's easier for you to do something even worse later on. The people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. That's not Bible, but that's pretty good. Lord, I'm grateful that you are a generous and loving God. And I'm grateful that as you call us into your kingdom and into your family, you empower us to be generous and grace-filled and loving people as well. May we fully surrender our lives to you, fully experience what you have to offer us on this side of heaven, and then, Lord, motivate us to pass that on so that this representation on earth... This church as your body and your presence, uh, Lord, just radiates the reality of what we have been given. And all of it, may you increase while we decrease. It's not about our reputation and our being noticed. It's about letting the light and the love and the truth of Jesus shine through us to a waiting and a watching and a wondering world. Uh, Lord, help us to experience this beautiful vision of life together in you. And as always, may it be for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.